Hello, hello. Welcome to the Jump the Stem podcast. Let me introduce today's guest, Jason Ping, who with his project at Intelisive this year, won first and best of category awards in the category of computational biology and bioinformatics. He built and trained a machine learning tool to read and interpret medical literature on genetic variations to predict the effects of genetic mutations, which would otherwise require a significant amount of resources and manual labor. He's also student council president. He's in the National Honor Society, president of China Care, and many more, which we're going to expand on our conversation. So, hey, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. For sure. Now, I'm real fascinated by your project. Yeah. First of all, congratulations on your award. Thank you, thank you. Personalized medicine is on the rise, yet what are some of the presented difficulties in interpreting genetic mutations? Can you expand on the presented problem? Oh, yeah, definitely. So, um, personalized medicine is an incredibly young and growing field and has a lot of potential to really, I think, change the lives of millions. But the, the major issue with interpreting genetic mutations, at least, is that so much of it still relies on manual labor. So um, to really allow personalized medicine to work, you need to understand, so in the terms of cancer, uh, for example, for a cancer patient, looking at their DNA and figuring out which mutation in their DNA sequence caused the cancer to occur, um, and once you figure out what mutation it is, you can then appropriately treat it and give it the proper medication for it. But the main issue is that we still don't necessarily know what every single mutation, uh, nor do we know what every gene in the human body even does, right? And mm-hmm. currently, this process is being done manually by teams of clinical pathologists manually sifting and reading through scientific literature to try and figure out if a mutation in a gene causes cancer, and if so, how does it do this? And this is a process to say that takes you know dozens and dozens of people. They can take uh, days, weeks, even months at times. So we're dealing with an enormous amount of data, which just requires hours, hours of looking through them. And of course, we know that we make mistakes. There is that additional factor that perhaps the mutation is not identified by the scientist. Is that correct? That's, that's exactly. That's perfect. And you targeted a problem from, well, the category um, name itself tells a bit about it. So you implemented AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning technologies to provide a new solution to the problem. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, definitely. So um, I essentially built a machine learning tool that's based around natural language processing, which is the idea that we can use AI to understand English language. And what I did was essentially I trained this machine learning tool on clinical literature, most of it uh, coming from PubMed, which is an open source uh, library of just scientific articles. And by feeding it these articles, I basically try to teach my model to one, be able to understand the human language as well as to basically summarize what the main ideas of each document was. And then also, if given a mutation and uh, in the side of gene to predict what type of effect that mutation would have in a person. That's awesome. So we're talking about mutations, but it's also important to talk about amino acids, substituted amino acid. And you included analyzing the Grantham scores of these amino acids in the research. What was the purpose of that? So most mutations are missense mutations, and they come in the form, or at least essentially what happens is that at a certain amino acid within a gene, uh, it's accidentally swapped with another amino acid. And that in itself is the mutation. So, for example, um, if I had the mutation G57A, uh, this is completely arbitrary, by the way. This means that at the 57th amino acid, 
uh, amino acid glycine is replaced with alanine. And that in itself would be the mutation that causes a cancer or doesn't cause a cancer. What Grantham scores are is that it's a metric that was produced uh, decades ago, which essentially is the evolutionary distance between two amino acids. And the idea of this is really that if you substitute two amino acids that are incredibly evolutionarily different in property as well, you have a much bigger effect and more damaging alteration than you would if you accidentally swap two amino acids that are really similar to each other. Oh, I see. So the more distant two amino acids are, the more damaging is their substitution. Exactly. Okay. You also included that data, and that's how you developed your machine learning technology. Who so gave consideration that factor as well? Yep. This is just another one of the one of the another data points that my machine used to determine, you know, predict the effects of mutations. That's awesome. Could you expand on your experimental settings and then what those settings yielded at the end? So your outstanding results. I guess where my train of thought really first went was uh, I spoke to clinical pathologists that manually do the job and I try to mimic the way that they do the job as closely as possible within a machine. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they manually read and interpret papers. I added that in. They manually consider things such as Grantham scores, which amino acids are being changed. That was added in as well. Uh, other aspects such as, you know, how, like, what's the credibility of the research journal? How many papers are discussed, uh, are talking about the same thing? Is it just one paper that's found it? Is it 10 to 11? You know, that just that understanding of how confident can we be in this answer? You know, these are all the ways that I really went about to, in terms of what type of aspects to add in and what types of aspects to consider. Yeah, in terms of what I want to expand in a sense, I think almost every machine learning project at the end of the day is kind of a, a game to try and get the highest accuracy possible. So my accuracy of my tool was 92%, which meant that uh, in 90% of the cases, it was right. But that means that 8% of the cases, it was still wrong. And you know, I'm, I'm still trying to bring that number even higher to hopefully as close to 100% 100 pos uh, 100 as possible. And that's just uh, you know trying new things, integrating newer, better algorithms, uh, more efficient types of uh, algorithms, etc. Wow. Well, in itself, 92% is an amazing number of accuracy, not just, well, a grading on your high school exam, which is an A+, plus, I guess, but also in the world of machine learning as well. And I also read about an F1 score. What does it stand for? Okay, so um, an F1 score is essentially, it's the harmonic mean between I, precision and recall. So what that essentially means is it's a... Precision and recall are two different ways to act, to do look at um, metrics that are a lot more telling than accuracy is. So, for example, if um, if I had a room of 100 people, and in that room of 100 people, only one of them had cancer, but if I just said, no one has cancer, mm -hmm. I would be technically 99% accurate, but I my tool would do absolutely nothing because I didn't pick up the one person who actually has that cancer, you know? So that's why accuracy in itself can somewhat be misleading when there are imbalances in terms of who has cancer, who doesn't, or anything, any other classification. So what precision and recall are is it's similar to specificity and um, uh, I guess recall and such. It's like looking at the number of people that actually have it over how many you chose and um, the number of people who don't have it over the number of people you chose. It's another, it's another way of looking at how accurate your model is essentially. Mm, so you are analyzing it from a different angle. Yes, okay. yes. Okay, that's real cool. You identify 13 novel oncogenic mutations. Was it something you expected or it came like a surprise? Oh, it definitely wasn't being expected at all. Um, it was more, you know, as I went along, I started to realize that 
there were a few mutations in my model just for some, when I looked into why my model had that error margin beginning stages, I was just like wondering, you know, my model is so confident in these. Why is it that confident in, in that in its answer when these are clearly determined as insignificant or we don't know yet? So, you know, I looked into the confidence and I saw that my model was incredibly confident in these answers. And then I did further research and it really showed that it, these 13 were highly likely to have caused cancer. And this really wasn't what I expected. It was more of me sort of, you know, taking a step back, figuring out why I have this weird anomaly and then realizing, oh, my model actually discovered something that, you know, hadn't been discovered yet. That's amazing. Yeah, a lot of discoveries come by being at well, just in a quote by mistake when you are not expecting that it's going to yield those results. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and, and it can be implemented in the medical field very effectively and also in industrial settings as well. How do you plan the next steps in your projects? What are those? I guess the next steps is really trying to, you know, there, there have been a lot more advances even since ISEF till now of just how fast the machine learning community and industry is moving. So trying to implement the state-of-the-art technologies, update my current algorithms, and then hopefully be able to publish a paper that's uh, that's another that's another goal that I'm really trying to push towards. And then you know, once I have a paper published or anything like that, then you know, it really becomes, I guess, justified research or at least credible research. And then seeing if I can speak to medical centers and try to get my my tool to actually be used to help improve the lives of others. Yes, absolutely. You've also talked about the ISAP experience, so I want to move into that field. If you could describe the whole science fair experience with three words what would those words be eye-opening i guess those are four words in itself but <laughs> treat them as two words <laughs> and then i think just all around fun yes absolutely so if we're talking about fun what were some of your favorite moments of the week mm, there were definitely a lot that's gonna be yeah, kind of hard for me to just choose i guess the most ones notable ones were was listening to the entrepreneurship panel where they had ISEP alum who are currently owning their own companies come back and just seeing how, you know, they didn't go into the world of academia but rather went into the private industry but still made a name for themselves, still were able to continue their goal of helping others. The, uh, the dance was definitely one of my favorite moments. Just being able to be there, you know, that was when judging was all done. Everyone was just letting all out and having fun and that, that was a really cool moment. And I met a lot of a lot of cool friends that I still keep in touch with now on the dance floor. Yeah, it's one of the best ways to to gain new friends. Oh, definitely. And then I think the last and third most memorable moment would have to be just like sitting in my own booth and just talking to the people around me. You know, I finally found a place where you know the people around me had the because uh, being in the same category had the exact same passions and knew the exact same thing I was doing, and we just all had jokes about machine learning or just <laughs> talked about how we got to this point. And it was it was really really nice experience. I kind of fell at home in a sense. Okay, I'm really into science memes and pumps, so I'm not really familiar with artificial intelligence jokes. Can you tell me your favorite one or that pops on you in your mind? I can't think of anyone on the top of my head, I guess, but one that, you know, is something that's really fun for coding. I, I don't know the exact words, but it was like that, um, there's a song called 99 Bottles of Beer on the Wall, I believe. Yeah. 99 like bugs of code or of something in the code 99 problems of code uh take one down fix it around 146 problems in the code (laughs) when you try and fix one thing when it comes to coding chances are you just made yourself a lot more issues and it was something that we all talked about i see so it's a never-ending cycle right oh definitely 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 debugging is probably the most 
time-consuming, most frustrating, but most vital part of coding. It must really bug you, then. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> hey, I like that part. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to add that. If we were talking about the ISAF experience, that was a nice Wowan stage. Even the camera could not mix that flex. Did you plan it, or it was, like, spontaneous to do that on the stage? That was kind of in the moment. I was just like, you know what? This is going to be fun. This is going to be cool. And then I did it to the camera, and then I did it again later on. But the one when I did it later, when I did it later on, it was um, it was the final stage where they had all the best of categories up, and I told the person next to me, "Let's woe at the same time," which happened to be Allison. She ended up winning Intel Young Scientist. I believe she's she was on your podcast just a few weeks ago. Yes, yes. A shout yeah. out to Ellie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then uh, while we were up there, I think you know. I was just like, hey, hit the wall with me. And she, I was like, three, two, one. And she was the only one that did it. And afterwards, we ended up exchanging contact. And now we're really good friends. That's awesome. Yeah, you can even gain friends when you are standing on stage. Yeah, I think all of ISEP was just, you could really make friends so easily just because we all had the same bond of science. You know, we had something in common. Yes, it's such a valuable and such a diverse network. You can develop a connection with someone who is just, okay, really far from your category in terms of um, scientific fields, but you can connect because you share a passion for science together, and I think it's just awesome. Yeah, definitely. What would be your tips on how to most effectively explain the concepts of a scientific project? Because that can sometimes be hard. I still, I still am a fond believer that the most important and sometimes the most difficult part of research isn't actually the research itself, but it's trying to explain to others what your research is. Mm. Um, I guess my first tip is don't use jargon. Don't use, you know, terms or coin words that are only specific to your field because chances are most people won't understand that. And even sometimes the judges in your own field won't even understand some of the jargon. So try and find different ways, more specific ways to explain it. Also, like, really find ways to relate your research, you know, or just even relate how your results are. If, uh, an example I like to give a lot is if you're talking about size, you know, instead of saying, you know, just 250,000 square miles, maybe say that, you know, something about 250,000 square miles, which is also the size of Texas, you know, giving it some type of, some type of thing to, for most people to relate to that can understand to really put things into scale. Yes, that's real valuable because, well, numbers are important, but it's important to make those neural connections in their brains to actually visualize what you're talking about. And um, yeah, absolutely don't use the scientific foreign language because then you will not be able to transmit the information. <laughs> yeah, and I think the last one would just be rather than just talking about your the potential impact of your project give a specific example of how to be used so like if you're doing something for like the medical sector right don't just say yo this can affect cancer patients talk about how you know once a cancer patient would come in and how your project would be used to speed line the process or help them you know give them a story that they can actually follow along with these are some awesome tips and i think anyone who's listening and entering the scientific fair these are just really great um guiding points because if it's gonna be someone's first then you know you don't really know what to expect so it's great to hear about your experiences and what you've learned throughout your journey yeah definitely thank you 
For a quick commercial break, here comes a STEM shout out. For a few minutes, I would like you to direct your attention and listening ears to a nonprofit organization, Engage the STEM, that is now hosting something special. So, who is better to tell us about it all than Russell Yang? Hi, Russell, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So what is Engage the STEM's mission? So, Engage STEM's mission is to provide accessible STEM education to the public. And to that end, we host various initiatives. Right now, the two main initiatives we are spearheading are Tech Literacy for Seniors, which is a network of student-run chapters that are staffed by volunteers and provide free tech help to seniors, and an international essay contest about diversity and inclusion in science. We're also currently exploring other initiatives to further expand our impact in STEM that sounds awesome. So you are working for the advancement of science and also doing some such outreaches. So could you expand on the contest you're hosting and if someone wants to enroll, who is eligible to do it so? Sure. So all high school students are welcome to start chapters of Tech Literacy for Seniors and we'll provide some helpful advertising and marketing materials to try and help students successfully start their own chapters and make differences in their local communities. And likewise, all high school students are welcome to enter the International Essay Contest. So there's a word limit of 500 words. The due date is August 31st, 2019. And you can read more about that at engagestem.org slash essay. That's awesome. So if the listeners want to learn more about the opportunities, just go on this website and I will also include it on the Insta story and it also tells a little bit more about the tech literacy for seniors if someone is interested in that. Thank you. Now let's go back to the conversation with Jason. You won first award and I got to touch on this part. What does achievement mean to you? I probably say achievement is, you know, like really finally reaching the goals that you set your, for yourself um, and having hard work pay off. I don't think it's necessarily like meeting the top or meeting like how grand these awards are or these goals are, but rather just meeting the goals that you set for yourself, mm-hmm. no matter how realistic or unrealistic. In every scientific research, there are some setbacks we face while conducting it. How did you overcome those? You know, my biggest setback, I even spoke about it in one of my ISAP interviews, was that I think near midway through my project, I accidentally deleted or deleted all the data onto my server. Ooh, no way. So I had to, yeah, so I had to restart my entire project from scratch. And that was, yeah, I, I was very angry and very upset. But I think the best way for me to get over it is that, you know, I took some time off. I knew that, you know, trying to code while I'm also wanting to smash my computer isn't the best use of my time. So I took the weekend off and then I told myself that when I get back, I'd get right back into it. And surprisingly, I think that was probably the best mistake that's ever happened to me was because, you know, when I was retyping out all my code, I realized that I did it a lot more efficiently. I had nicer, tighter and nicer code and that because now I actually knew what I wanted to do. So it went through a makeover. Yeah, definitely. Wow. And how long did that take for you to set all the things back up again? Uh, that probably took like a month or so. Wow. Uh, machine learning projects, when it comes to large data sets, take a long time to load and run the code. So that took the longest time. It's just running the code and waiting for it to load. 
But yeah, it taught you some, you know, valuable lessons because now you have a nicer data code. 100%. I've mentioned this in the intro, but you are definitely doing busy. You are part of the National Chinese Honor Society and president of China Care. You also volunteer with Chinese Medical Program and the Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Could you share about the work you do and some of the lessons you've learned during providing help and, and service to patients? I think I genuinely believe that anyone trying to go into anything medical or science-related should be volunteering and talking to and experiencing, interacting with the patients that they would one day be affecting to really understand the human scale, the human level of what your what your research is doing. You know, I think one of the, a lot of the lessons I learned, one of them being you, you really don't want to judge anyone on their outward appearance, especially in a hospital. A lot of the people have disabilities, illnesses, sicknesses, but at the, end of the, at the end of the day, they all have their own story and each of their own lives. So really, I really want, want to encourage people to kind of make it their mission to get out of their comfort zone and try and learn about others and talk to others and rather than just stray away from those who just look a bit off, I, I guess, from a physical standpoint. And then also just to never take anything for granted. I've met some of the strongest uh, people, willpower-based, uh, the most wise and inspiring people who are also at the lowest points in their lives, but, you know, they still push on. Mm. And that's the... I could really resonate with what you are saying because my aunt um, suffered from cancer and various oh. types of diseases. She passed away, but during the time I could spend with her, it was so valuable. She was very sick and, you know, thin and outwardly looking very fragile, but she taught me some of the most valuable lessons I have now. And I vividly remember before entering any of the sci scientific fairs, she told me that I want you to help people like me. And that just really stuck with me and that inspired me to continue on the project. And it, it really is different when, just as you said, when you have a personal connection with those patients. Definitely. That's yeah. really inspiring. And also you see the human side of it. So I think when you are, you know, writing your code, sitting in front of a computer, that could be like an inspiration to follow on because you've experienced what it looks like in real life. It's a very interesting part of the interview. Um, we got to touch on a crucial part of your life because you've been elected class of 2020 representative. And I'm going to quote a few lines from your rap, solid rapping, splitting flames, Honest, confident, and never being late. So where did the idea come from to make this winning intro video? <laughs> um, that was, so when student council elections came around, I really wanted to be, you know, in there making a name for myself. And I was told by upperclassmen that because student council elections are done by the entire school, freshmen, often the people who really, uh, who are most well-known or most qualified, don't necessarily win purely because upperclassmen don't really know who they are. So they just vote randomly. So I was told by an upper-class friend who was on student council that the best way to get your name out there is to make something really funny, silly, and kind of cringy in the <laughs> in the hopes of it in the hopes of it being spread around to the different grades as kind of a joke, and then they'll vote for you. So I did just that, and my friend scared me to do a rap. So I also did that, and uh, yeah, it ended up working out pretty well. Yes, leave word because you've been actually selected 2020 representative. Yeah, yeah, that I was uh, elected. Uh, for three terms, freshman, sophomore, and uh, beginning of junior year. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. You've also taken a bigger role recently since you are now student council president. Could you tell us about the changes you've brought forth and wish to make being in that position? This January, I was elected as student body president. 
my school runs on a calendar system when it comes to student council. Um, it's it's a we it's a new change that they made just a few years ago, but um, just if that kind of seems weird that I've been since January rather than just for senior year. I think um, you know the biggest change that I definitely made was I helped redesign my school's curriculum. So a major issue being that in the past, whether that be students or alumni talking, is that you know there'd be a very very intensive course load, like a lot a lot of classes, um, an overbearing number of classes every year for a lot of kids, mm-hmm. and you know oftentimes teachers would assign major projects or assessments on the same day, you know. So over the course of roughly a year, you know, I, I tried rearranging the curriculum so that at the by the time we graduate, kids would have the same number of hours in each subject completed, but at one moment they wouldn't have that many classes at once. And that way they can focus on each class more as well as have a lot more flexibility with their time. And that, that, that ultimately was pushed through. It's going to be affecting the new incoming freshmen. And I think that should be the very first instance in my school in which a student designed a curriculum that got that got pushed through. Wow, it's real cool because a student designed it, so you actually know the struggles of having to deal with load of assignments for one day when when you have from different subjects. So uh, I think it definitely helped because you could you know respond to that situation from a student perspective. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I think other I guess other things I did were. Um, there was the very tragic shooting at the Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida. Um, that I believe that was a year or two ago. You know that ultimately led to the hashtag Enough movement. So there, there on, uh, on, you know, on the anniversary, the one year anniversary, a lot of a lot of kids, or not one year anniversary, a few month anniversary, I believe, a lot of kids in our school wanted to participate in the in the school walkout to try and you know make a name for you know the whole gun issue right now in America. Yes, but. Our school, our administration happened to have the shortfall of saying the same response a lot of other schools in the media talked about, and that it's a safety issue to just let kids leave class and that it wasn't allowed. So they ended up being very, very strict with it, and a lot of kids weren't really happy, you know, that the school was threatening detention or not allowing students to go out. So, you know, I really took it upon myself as an issue that really does speak to me to go to administration and speak to them, and I understand it from their, their point of view. Their main issue was safety. They don't want a thousand kids all crammed into the hallways going outside to march and, you know, to to chant uh, in the middle of the day into the streets. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I I spoke to them about how, you know, it was really our right to freedom of speech and how any proper school should be able to cultivate their students being passionate about something. And we we ultimately got to a point where I was able to... While the school necessarily didn't endorse the walkout, it promised that it wouldn't punish any students who did participate in it. And I think that was the best I could I could get out of that. So you uh, tried to navigate that very heated scenario. You had to negotiate between the school who is uh, considered about your protection, but also the students who want to express their opinions and you know participate in that run. So I think that could be really hard to be the peacemaker and you know try to get a, a solution that works for both parties. Yeah, definitely. Being like in that position, of course, someone from an outsider perspective might see that, okay, that's a title, but it's so much more. It's dealing with the nuances of everyday life. It's really being the, the bridge between the student body and the people who make the rules, I guess, the administration. Yes, and also I saw that you are hosting e-game tournaments. Um, I'm not sure if I'm correct about it. Yeah, that was something that we just we added into our, uh, 
our annual field day. It was just a little something that a lot of kids really wanted. And that was just that, you know, rather than just physical sports, that we'd have things like board games or computer games be added in to count for points when it comes to our field day competitions. That's cool. You can train for e-game Olympics too then. (laughs) Definitely. Well, talking about passions and hobbies, you turn to photography to unwind. When did you develop a passion for freezing the fleeting moments as you put it into words in your ISAF interview of life with your camera? I think when I first developed it was probably my freshman year of high school. Um, It was when I first finally got an iPhone with a nice camera. And then, you know, it was that that was my first that was my first camera, you know, my, my iPhone, you know, going around New York and trying to take shots while I had, you know, use my phone. Yeah. And I started to like it so much. And eventually I moved on to getting a professional, um, a professional camera, a professional DSLR camera. And that was my first camera was the Canon SL2. And that I got my sophomore year. And that's when I really started taking photography a bit more seriously. But it still is just a kind of a side hobby that I do. Yeah, I see some of your pictures while you were, um, I think, in, in Hawaii, right? In your travel, some of your oh, photographic yes. pictures. Edit or retouch your photos after taking them? Yeah, I use uh, Lightroom a lot. Lightroom really lets the colors pop and for you to really get that, that feel that you really wanted. Yeah, I saw a lot of recommendations on you know photographic pages to use Lightroom. I'm still stuck with Snapseed, but... <laughs> Yeah, there is this new trend, you know, to see yourself. I don't know the old the A challenge or to oldify yourself. Oh yes, yes, that was a, the face app. The challenge. face yeah. app, yeah, that's just crazy. It went wild on Insta. <laughs> it definitely has. Been. Photography permeates our everyday life. We can say that. Yeah. What's your favorite place you visited so far? I probably would say Vienna. I that was a probably, Hawaii was the best vacation I've ever been on. But I think my favorite place has probably has to be Vienna. Um, I went there for a summer vacation last year and, you know, it was the, the amount of history in that city and, you know, the amount of culture behind, you know, in most European cities, because you know, in America, we still are a very, very, very young country in comparison to a lot of the older countries mm-hmm. and just being there and, you know, going on tours and learning about all these, you know, famous monarchs and people that I've listened to in history class and realizing, oh, I'm standing in their bedroom, you know, that was really really cool it was really gave me a shift of perspective i think yes so have you visited schoenbrunn if you're talking about bedrooms i did visit that was that was a really beautiful mansion yes it's just really close to me that's why i know because i live in hungary so vienna is like four hours away oh wow that's really close then wow you're lucky vienna is a 20 or so hour trip from my place so yeah that takes a bit longer and you know an airplane ticket as well but that's real cool that you could actually go around in the city and experience european culture a bit yeah it was really it was different from american culture that's for sure what's been something that's really stood out a marked difference between the two the history and the appreciation for architecture mm-hmm. you know everything there was really intricate and uh, I, just like the, the general vibe and general aesthetic was very different. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But, you know, it's like the reverse experience. When I went to the U.S., the spaces are so large <laughs> compared to what we have here. Well, a little bit back to science. What fact amazes you every time you think of it? Oh, oh, th- this one. This one's an easy one. <laughs> There is a fact that I like to quote a lot. If you fold a piece of paper 42 times, it'll reach the moon. I think that's absolutely insane. That uh, such a small thin piece of paper can be... You know, something so small can really have such a big, you know, impact in a sense. But also just, like, it's so crazy to think about. Like, one piece of paper that I have, like, in my room 
can mm. reach the moon if I voted enough times. It's, it's just, it's crazy to think about. Wow. I just tried to visualize it in front of myself, and it's just even crazy to think about it. Yeah, it would be really very, very thin, very, very like narrow, but it would be really long. And I think it's just so important to instill and teach those amazing and mind-boggling scientific facts to children um, at a very young age because that's when they are so malleable and able to receive those new ideas. Definitely, definitely. So did you have a moment when, you know, you had a feeling that, okay, I'm interested in science and that's what I'm going to pursue? Or was it like a gradual process? I've always been fond of the sciences in comparison, I think. You know, I'm very big on humanities, that's for sure, but I think science is something about science and that's the idea that there's always going to be one true answer and one right answer, but it's just the game of trying to figure out what it, what it was. Now, that really excited me. Yes, yes, discovering the unknown and then having definite answers by the mm-hmm. end of the day. It's like an if question. So given the choice of anyone in the world, who would you want as a dinner guest and why? Nikola Tesla. Yeah, I think he's probably the greatest inventor. In the world, uh, in history, I would say so at least. You know, he's the reason why we have electricity. You know, there's a whole yeah. belief Edison was the reason. It wasn't. Tesla was. And I think that he was such a, such a he was such a bright mind that just happened to not get the credit that he really deserved, and just to be able to figure out like how he was thinking and what he thought about, and just be ta- able to talk to him about you know just his experiences in general with living in America during that time and having such great ideas, but at the same time trying to be shut down by his competitors. And I think that's a really interesting perspective that I would love to see. Yes, that conversation should be recorded or should be recorded. And what would you guys have for dinner? I'd probably take him somewhere nice. Probably take him to some fancy Michelin star restaurant. <laughs> yes, yeah, he deserves it for, he would deserve it for sure. 100%. If your life was a movie, what song or song would definitely be on the soundtrack? First one that comes to my mind is Made in China by Higher Brothers, just because I'm Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a, that's, a, that's a really good song. It's also one of my personal favorites. Walking on Sunshine, that's a good old classic. Yes, I love it. That's cool. Uh, Mr. Blue Sky, can't go wrong with that. Mm, I didn't actually know that one. You've never, you have to listen to Mr. Blue Sky. It's a fantastic song. The last one being Can't Hold Us, I think Macklemore, that's yes. a good song. I think that's, that's, a, that's a really good motivating song. Yes, I like how you picked out, you know, different songs from different aspects. You know, something that portrays your heritage and then something a bit lighthearted, capturing different emotions. For the last one, I'm gonna bring this or that game section. So, we're just talking about how I'm just gonna translate So they are similar, but the method of making them different. Tropical or temperate climate? Temperate. Ninjas or pirates? Ninjas. Ninjas, okay. Theme park or water park? Theme park. Okay, you don't want to get wet, right? No, I'm good. <laughs> theme parks are pretty fun. I don't, I don't need the water in my face all the time. <laughs> Would you choose truth or dare? Truth. Okay, and the closing question is, what does science mean to you? I ask this from everyone, but I just really enjoy hearing all of your different answers. I think science to me is what, I was going back to what I was talking about earlier, just like, it's the constant, never-ending pursuit of truth and good, but in order to better understand the world and better help those around us. Hmm. It's very nicely put. I can see that you are fond of humanities. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think uh, the biggest motivation for me is 
behind science is what is the point of science if you can't do it to help others? Yeah. Absolutely, to have that external impact of mm -hmm. your scientific research. Yes, and, and it truly encapsulates what you've been doing. And congratulations again on your achievements. And yeah, it was great having you on a podcast. Thank you. It's great being here. Thank you for having me. You can find us on Instagram at DropTheStampPodcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and make sure to stay tuned for the next one.